Quest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cavi Productions. Hello, and welcome back to the Conquest of Bliss. I am here with Professor Dr. Gordon Matthews. <clears throat> oh, gosh. <laughs> He's an anthropologist with the uh, Hong Kong University, correct? A Chinese University of Hong Kong. Chinese University of Hong Kong. And uh, first of all, how are you today? Well, I'm still alive. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Always, always good to wake up. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about the history of happiness and and uh, so, like anthropology, that's the study of of humankind, right? Throughout history and cult- yeah. across yeah. cultures. Yeah, true. <laughs> so, um, so uh, the question that I have um, first off is: Do you know is there is there a big change in how happiness has been perceived? You know, o- over time, are we are we viewing it differently? Do you think than than previous humans? That's a good question. Um, and, and obviously, this varies from place to place. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I could talk on your question now for hours, but I'll try <laughs> to give you a quick can to three minutes here. Um, it seems, according to most anthropological research, that many hunter-gatherers didn't really have a word for happiness because people wouldn't be pursuing happiness. They'd simply live their lives and they still might find enormous joy. But the idea of I'm going to pursue my happiness wasn't really an issue. You just lived your life. Um, I know in the philosophical literature, Aristotle is famous for bringing up these different forms of happiness, hedonic happiness, which is a happiness that you get instantly from, you know, eating chocolate ice cream or whatever, Mm -hmm. as uh, eudaimonic happiness, which is more long-term, the happiness of of living a life well. And and Aristotle seemed to emphasize the latter a little more than the former. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of pursuing happiness is particularly American. It's in our Mm -hmm. Declaration of Independence and so on, which is um, rather odd because some authorities would say that if you pursue happiness, you're never going to find it, which makes a great deal of sense, I think. Um, One matter of happiness is that if life is taken care of, um, you know, the, the crucial issues of how you're going to pay your rent and put food on the table for tomorrow, then you can afford to think about if you're happy or not. But mm-hmm. certainly for people who are one step away from starvation or destitution, the idea of whether or not you're happy w- would be a, a real luxury. Mm-hmm. And so it's often said that Americans, and, and I'm, I'm speaking of Americans, but it could be anybody in the developed world, are less happy than they might have been in the past. And one possible explanation for this is simply that people have uh, more time to think about whether they're happy or not. <laughs> and, yes. and another obvious factor that I'm sure you've dealt with in your podcast is that material goods don't make people happy. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, you, you you may have accumulated the idea that if I'm rich, everything will work out. Well, some things will work out, but some probably won't. <laughs> you can yeah. be rich and still be pretty lonely. And so I think in much of the developed world, in the U.S., in Canada, in Europe, in Japan, and so on, people are thinking about happiness more than ever before, but arguably they're not any closer to attaining it. That totally makes sense. And it reminds me of something that I read once. I can't remember what the number was. I think it was around 100,000. Um, they did a study on can happiness or can you buy happiness, essentially? Does money buy happiness? 
And it really speaks to the point that you just made is that like at a certain point when you're no longer having to think about money for survival, you see incredibly diminishing returns on happiness or the ability to attain happiness. So that totally makes sense to me. Um, and and, and you can understand this easily from daily life that, you know, the, when you buy your first computer or mm-hmm. your first mobile phone, or for that matter, your first automobile, damn, wow, I've got this now. But when you buy your 10th, I mean, come on, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Especially if it's not like some massive upgrade, like your first smartphone, you know, might be, might be exciting. Like there's got to be something unique about it to, to bring that same level of joy. Um, like my, uh, my boyfriend, he just bought his first new car not that long ago. And it's like, that was different because he was buying other cars before that were, that were used and he had to work on a lot. And he like, you know, sort of bought himself some, some free time by buying the new car. But, you know, of course it comes with money that he's got to pay and stress and stuff. So does it really make him happier? I don't know. And then, you know, following up what you just said, um, let's say he gets richer and mm-hmm. buys a second car. Oh, the second car might be nice for convenience. Then a third car, well, <laughs> a fourth car, well, it only goes so far. And obviously, we're not downplaying the importance of money uh, at the start. I think if you have mm-hmm. less than a certain sum, less than in the U.S. or Canada, less than 30,000, 50,000, 70,000 a year, then you will be strapped. If you have no health insurance, you will be strapped. Clearly that's the case. No one could ever dispute that. However, beyond a certain point, we have been fed a myth that money will lead to greater happiness and obviously it won't. I mean, is is Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Elon Musk um, uh, a million times happier than those who have a million times less money? Obviously not. No. And, and I would even go to like, go as far as to say that from observation, it seems to go in the opposite direction because everything you own comes with this like weight and it it creates this fear of lack. Right. So people start hoarding things. Like I know when I've had lots of stuff and especially if that stuff has higher value, I, I think about it and I'm like, Oh, I have to protect it. I have to take care of it and stuff like that. And so when I like downsized and had less stuff, I was interestingly enough, happier because it was less of a weight on me, less pressure. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Possessions come to possess you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a, that's such a great little, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, sentence, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, and the other, uh, the other thing that I was really curious about um, with, with your experience, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, is how happiness looks different across cultures. And you know, so I and I did a I did a little thing just uh, just yesterday where I put my uh, podcast name, The Conquest of Bliss, into Google, and then I translated it to a language and translated it back just to see what the closest approximation they thought was in the language. Google, of course, is not perfect, but um, and there was like triumph of joy or overcoming happiness, and there was a lot of different takes on what that sentence might mean, and and I just wonder is that. Like is in your experience, having traveled and studied, is there a lot of differences in how people perceive the idea of happiness? Sure, there is. Absolutely. And part of it has to do with uh, the linguistic matter that a term like happiness or its equivalent in other languages uh Hoisam in Cantonese or Kofuku in, in uh, Japanese or Shiwase. I mean, e- even within a given language, there may be several different terms for happiness. Those differ in the particular areas they cover. But there's also the weirdness, even in English. I mean, what a weird word. I mean, 
I get to eat ice cream tonight. I'm so happy. Or <laughs> I've discovered God. I'm so happy. Why are we using the same word for both of these uh, <laughs> sets of emotions? They're in totally different areas. And it's kind of bizarre how we use this. And, and so, so the very term is kind of odd, how short term or long term it may be. Um, another factor beyond language itself is culture. Mm -hmm. And even a, a number of uh, uh, professors and professionals studying the meaning of happiness have made what I see as big mistakes in this area. There was a book that came out of MIT Press that was saying, why are North Americans happier than East Asians? And it talked about the example of Japanese. And well, it's because if you give a survey to somebody in English, in American English anyway, people are sort of expected to say they're happy. Mm -hmm. You know, America is a place where you're supposed to be happy. And if you're not happy, there's something wrong with you. So people would say, oh, I'm so happy. Now, they might not be, but people tend to exaggerate a bit. Mm -hmm. In Japan, on the other hand, modesty is prized. And so if you say, oh, I'm really happy, other people might see the questionnaire. They might say, who the hell does this person think they are? <laughs> and so as a result, downplay it. Don't talk about how happy you are. Mm -hmm. And so I think the survey, the people who wrote this book were kind of confused in thinking that the survey gave a glimpse into reality. No, it didn't. It gave a glimpse into different strategies of taking a survey and what you think <laughs> you're supposed to say in a survey. So that stuff has to be remembered. People have to be really careful when they make generalizations about happiness surveys. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, um, and, and it also ties into the language too, right? Like, um, you know, if the survey is using happiness as a broad term, and they specifically mean, say, wellness or life fulfillment, or, you know, sense of belonging, that kind of areas of happiness. But the person reading it maybe thinks hedonistic happiness. And they, you know, they think like, oh, I don't want to be seen as a pleasure seeker. So, you know, like that can have a big impact on those types of surveys too. Yeah, sure, Ken, absolutely right. And, and uh, I know that many of the surveys used uh, talk about life satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And they ask you on a scale of zero to 10, how satisfied are, are you with your life? That's a little more removed from direct experience. And so it may be a little more valid. And I think if you do find that, for example, Finns score significantly higher than Congolese or Lithuanians, that probably will tell you something. I'm not saying all surveys are wrong in this sense, but mm -hmm. happiness itself is such a vague term that it's confusing. And I know Daniel Kahneman, the famous scholar who's written uh, quite a bit about happiness and won a Nobel Prize too, um, gave up surveys of happiness because he, he found that by altering the question a bit of what he was asking, he would get totally different responses. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember, I think in, in one of his books, he was describing how uh, when he asked people, uh, Americans particularly, um, do you sometimes feel that you put on a happy face to the world when really you're unhappy inside? They would start to cry, many of the people he interviewed. <laughs> well, you can't do that kind of research. Or another question is, he'd ask people how happy you are to get a high rate, and then he would ask them, when's the last time you went on a date? And ask the same question, and it would plummet drastically. <laughs> so, yeah, context. Know, it's a situational matter, and people have to be really careful as to how they ask about happiness. I myself, as an anthropologist, don't ask survey questions. I instead ask people about their lives for hours and on that basis get some sense of happiness. Even what I find may or may not be valid because people tell different things to different people. But I think it's likely to be more valid if you talk to somebody over several meetings for a number of hours rather than simply have them check a box or give a number on a, on a questionnaire. 
Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I was actually going to ask, like, what other approaches are viable to to gauge that kind of thing? Um, but you answered it. So, <laughs> well, I mean, as an anthropologist, um, the the specialty of anthropology is something called ethnography and ethnographic interviewing, where instead of doing a survey where you never meet the person, the person just filling out a piece of paper, instead you talk to them face to face. And I mean, I could do that kind of survey with you and Cara on your own podcast. You're doing something similar. You're doing an ethnographic interview in a sense where you're trying to find out what goes on with the person. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, obviously there's a problem because you can't cover a huge number of people. You know, you can only talk to so many people. But the the disadvantage of a, a lack of breadth is overcome by the advantage of a depth. You can find mm-hmm. out much more what goes on with particular people. So my own suggestion has always been that it's okay to do surveys like the, the economists and the sociologists and psychologists do. But along with that, you need to have some detailed ethnographic interviews. Pick 50 people in a given country or 100 people in a given country and talk to them in great depth about their lives and judge happiness only using that as well as the surveys. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I think, I think too, like, you know, because there's so much charge around the idea of happiness, I think that the ethnographic interviews can be helpful when, you know, when people are sharing their lives without specifically trying to display their level of happiness. You sure. know, um, I think that, that that can have a lot of value in it too. Um, so as far as, you know, across cultures and stuff like that, have you noticed, because you said early on, you know, um, about how some people say the pursuit of happiness is in and of itself counter to <laughs> um, attaining happiness. And I have heard that a well, as well a lot, of, a lot of different times is basically, you know, we become obsessed about things and, and we've got this goal, we've got this goal, but it's a moving goalpost. And, and so um, do you find that cultures that have less of a focus on it tend to see more life satisfaction Well, there's one brutal sense about happiness that has to be remembered, which is that about 50% or more of a given person's happiness level is genetic. Oh, You've got this set point of happiness that you feel. And, And so that for some people, they will always be at a relatively pessimistic level of experience and others at a more optimistic level. This appears to be pan cultural. And, you know, I know among my best friends are a Japanese couple and uh, he is a doctor and she is an unemployed English teacher and she's always off the moon in terms of happiness (laughs) and he is always deeply depressed. This has little to do, or not depressed because it's not a clinical matter, but uh, pessimistic. This Mm -hmm. has very little to do with culture. This has much more to do with where they are on that genetic set point. Now, your your environment always changes it, whether you Mm -hmm. have a, a happy relationship or not, whether you have a job you love or not, uh, whether you have friends or not, whether you have health or not, these are always going to be factors. But the, the genetic point can't be ignored. Some of That's, us are more innately optimistic and some more innately pessimistic. That's fascinating. You know, I didn't know that, that, that uh, our genetics affect our happiness. <laughs> and it's really important to remember for a podcast like yours mm-hmm. because, um, you know, if somebody is innately pessimistic, it's going to be kind of hard to overcome that. They can become incrementally more happy, obviously, but our genes do 
I won't say they determine this, but they have a very large contextual factor in shaping how happy or how less than fully happy we're going to feel. I personally am extremely lucky. Genetically, I am ridiculously optimistic. <laughs> but I haven't earned that. No, it's a matter of genetics. My father was the same way and I'm carrying it on. So what can I say? <laughs> that totally makes that like as you're speaking, like I I can like feel how how true that is. I'm thinking across people that I know and how, you know, like in spite of like, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, challenges in my life and stuff that have been um, really difficult to overcome. But even in those worst moments, I was still more optimistic. I tended to be happier. So that that is super valuable. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's, it's, it's good that we came out with this then. Now, cultures do differ, and, and uh, I didn't answer your question. I talked about <laughs> genetics instead. Um, your question, too, is really important because there are things that countries can do to create a happier group of citizens than a less happy group of citizens. And I'll be glad to talk about those. But the genetics are here. And so I guess one key for your podcast is nobody should feel bad about feeling unhappy. It might be simply. It's like your genetical basis for whether or not you get heart disease or, you know, arthritis or whatever. It's the same thing. Another one, uh, intelligence is really similar. A lot of people, you know, don't realize how much of intelligence is genetic and that it's just kind of a luck of the draw, sure. you know, like whenever people you know, say that I'm smart. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, like, thank you. I guess like I didn't, I didn't make that happen. You know, same kind of thing. Well, sure. And, and, and many, many other things. Appearance mm -hmm. of course is genetic in large part, although not entirely. Uh, so too are many, many other attributes we have. And um, we shouldn't blame ourselves or congratulate ourselves for these attributes. You know, I, I look at it in terms of, say, NBA players, where uh, the difference between a truly great player and a mediocre player, partly it's a matter of how hard the player tries, partly it's purely a matter of genetics. Mm -hmm. and, and that has to be remembered because we are often fed the myth that if we try hard, we can attain everything. No, you can't. There's a lot of yes. things you can't attain. And we need to be able to just surrender the things that we can't attain and be happy about it. So Yeah, and just, uh, yeah, exactly. The accept that we are where we're at and meet ourselves there instead of instead of obsessing over what we're not. That that sure. totally makes sense. So um, uh, across cultures, you were going to go into that and then we got more into genetics. <laughs> yep. Well, um, obviously there is a great, cultural difference in how happiness is perceived. And one stereotype, but it has a degree of truth, is there are some societies where playing your duty and role is key to happiness, and other societies where the individual pursuit of fulfillment is key. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get into which, but I think you could say that uh, fulfillment of duty and role probably is the case more in traditional societies of many sorts around the world, mm -hmm. whereas the individual pursuit of happiness probably is more a function of modernity. The great problem we have in today's world is that we have so much free choice. Mm -hmm. the sociologist Anthony Giddens talked about how today we have no choice but to choose. And so I look at my students and I'm thinking, damn, life is tough. Because back 300 years ago, for most people in the world, you didn't have to choose. You know, your gender was given to you. And, and so that made a difference in, in your life outlook, obviously. But mm -hmm. other than that, your occupation probably was given. You'd probably be a peasant farmer somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that was the standard for most people in the globe. Today, though, you really can be absolutely anything. Now, most people don't. 
Uh, most people follow relatively standard paths, but potentially you don't have to. And that's a great opportunity, but it also is a great challenge because so many young people across the globe are thinking, who am I? What can I be? What can I do? And, and I think that ambition can be rather frightening because there are all these possibilities and the chances are you won't be able to attain many of these. How do you accept that? So we're in a different world. Now, I'm not answering your question about culture because I don't think culture is that great a distinction now. Mm -hmm. I think instead it's the modern world that we're in today as opposed to the past. The internet changes a huge amount. Mm -hmm. It gives massive amounts of free choice in terms of what you can choose to become, but it also shows you all of these different patterns that you may never be able to fit. Mm -hmm. That total oh, that totally makes sense. I uh, I have uh, some experience, you know, doing what I thought I was supposed to do as far as like a regular job, and then just like really quickly, um, and then I ended up uh, getting getting sick, and I could no longer do the nine to five thing. I have some health issues that prevent me from doing nine to five work. And then like five years later, I ended up doing this. And that was something I struggled with a lot is that choice that, you know, how do you motivate yourself and pick a direction when there's a thousand directions that might work? Um, so I really relate to it, to what you just said about that. Um, and Cara, it's interesting what you say here, because looking at, at uh, I'm guessing about your own life, because I don't know you, but looking at your own life, on the one hand, you have this great freedom of choice. Wow, mm -hmm. I can do a podcast on happiness. Wow, people <laughs> love to do that. On the other hand, you know, how do you put food on the table? How do you make a living? That must be a huge issue. It's not like it would have been, uh, say, centuries ago, where you probably would have been married to somebody that you might not particularly love, but, you know, you have children, you do the standard role, and, you know, you live through it. And that's a whole different pattern. Now, our interesting question is, which is happier? My, my intuition is you're probably happier than most people. Many people would have been in that earlier situation. But who can say? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not willing to say that we are entering this era of bliss because we're free. Too much freedom can be a problem, too. Although I mm -hmm. certainly am not saying that to you in particular. Yeah, no, I, I relate, too. And I, rem I remember when I first got sick, like, that was one of the things, like, almost exactly what you just said about, like, I remember wishing that it were old and not like olden times, but even, you know, times where, where I would be given a role at home where my being sick wouldn't prevent me, you know, and I remember wishing for that. And now, you know, looking back at that time when I was looking at that and not sure what I was going to do and wishing that I had, you know, um, societally given structure. Now, now I am very, very glad, you know, that I have the freedom, but I so agree is, is too much freedom is, is as much imprisonment as, as as less. Yeah, although I guess I should say, Carla, it's um, imprisonment for some people and bliss for others. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, for example, the, the, the gay people I know who are my age are thankful that they didn't grow up 100 years ago when they might have mm -hmm. been 50 years ago, when their, their lives might have been radically repressed in a way that they're not now. On the other hand, for people who are more traditional and conventional in orientation, the lack of guideposts to follow can be profoundly frightening. It may be that numbers of QAnon believers, I don't know, I'm guessing here, <laughs> but in numbers of Q QAnon believers are people who are looking for a structure that they see vanished. And so just look for any way to explain the world. Who can say? Yeah, yeah that, uh, that totally makes sense. And I think, like, I think that 
that's one of the things about happiness and we've kind of touched on it a lot of different times is, you know, it meaning different things to other people and it, you know, like even life satisfaction, fulfillment, you know, like you said, some people freedom is key. I mean, you know, the, the changes that are happening that are allowing for different lifestyles and different things like that is, is absolutely key. And for other people, you know, finding some structure, finding some, somebody to tell them what to do, that's key. You know, and 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 happiness is elusive um, as even a concept, just because it crosses over so many different ideas. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I think of happiness as something that you should never seek. Rather, it comes as a byproduct. So, what you should seek, I'm, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm being too glib here because I, <laughs> I don't mean this exactly. But, but when you look for happiness, it's like, am I, am I happy? Where can I find happiness? There's happiness. Where is it? Can I find it? Well, if, if you're too self-conscious about it, you'll never find it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know I myself. The times in my life I felt really happy. Let's say I've been working all day, or I've been with my wife and done this and that, and then late at night. I've decided to relax. And so I, I turn on like BBC Earth or something and have a glass of whiskey or brandy and think, wow, I guess I'm pretty happy. And it, it sort of comes in fr- from nowhere, really, that sense. And, and rather than directly pursuing it, it seems to make more sense that just to live your life uh, doing what you really want to do, you know, enjoying life, experiencing life all you can. And then if you feel happy, sometimes terrific, but it's a byproduct rather than a direct pursuit. Now, that's only my own belief. I I don't want to offer this as a philosophy for everyone, (laughs) but I think it makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. And mine, um, believe it or not, you know, I know I talk about happiness all the time, but believe it or not, mine is is similar. Like I try to focus more of my energy on physical and mental wellness and, you know, um, contributing to society and that kind of stuff and find that happiness is a byproduct of that. I think one of the things like one of the reasons that it isn't as productive, I guess, I don't know what the right word is, um, to seek it directly is, is like I said, there's changing goalposts. And it's also, it's, it's like, it's like if you have, if you want a butterfly to land in your hand and you try to grab it, like you're going to crush the butterfly, right? Yeah. Yep. 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 (laughs) So great example. I, I think you're absolutely right when you say that, that, um, it is like if you try to grab happiness, it's like crushing the butterfly in your hand. That's a very good line. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And then you implied another issue, too, of how much do we seek happiness for ourselves, and how much do we try to help others? Mm-hmm. And that's a really tricky and difficult matter because um, if you only think about yourself and your happiness, you'll probably be miserable. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I've known people who are profoundly altruistic in their lives and yet are still miserable as, as human beings. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of difficult to say. Uh, happiness ideally would come from helping the world, but not making that your sole focus. Um, you, obviously, we exist in order to help other people. That is a central focus of our existence. But mm-hmm. we have our own needs, too, and our own desires, too. And there has to be some room for that, too. There's got to be some balance in between these two. And how we choose that is a matter of our own individual lives. But it can't be either one or the other entirely, I would think. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that, too, is, I mean, and that's that's a, something that I personally have struggled with a lot. Um, I'm not in America, I'm in Canada, but there's a lot of, like, there's there's this weird dichotomy that I've seen where 
you know, people are like against selfishness, quote unquote, as a concept, while at the same time against selflessness as a concept. Like, and it, they kind of bump into each other. Like, if if you're selfish, then people think you're a, a a butthead and if people you know and if you're selfless people think you're a doormat and and I think for me like one of the things that I've learned is is to for lack of a better way to put it sort of fill my cup as needed so if I need self-care in whatever way do that you know um, boundaries have have healthy boundaries as far as allowing people to take um, when I'm not really willing or able to do that and then once that's taken care of, then my focus becomes trying to take care of other people. Does that make yeah, sense? That, that, that makes perfect sense. I, I completely agree with you. And then I'd want to add to what you just said, the um, ideal of, of some Eastern religions like Buddhism, for example, mm-hmm. of a, a transcendence of the self, an escape of the self. I, I don't know the proper wording to use. Maybe Hinduism is a better example where you go from the small self to the large self, from mm-hmm. Brahman to Atman, uh, you know, for, from, from samsara to Atman, going to, to a larger self. And that's really interesting to do. But on the other hand, it's often said that you can't pursue that too much or you get caught up in that pursuit itself, which tends to blind you to anything. Mm-hmm. And then I guess my own issue, I have spent some time uh, meditating in Buddhist monasteries, not much, but enough to realize that, hey, wait, rather than do this, I think I'd rather just enjoy life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember sitting in a Buddhist monastery for a while, counting my breaths and then walking outside and thinking, you know, I'd really rather look at the flower. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather listen to the thunder and look at the rainbows and so on. Now, I certainly am not going against Buddhist teachings because they're often quite wise, but it is interesting. I mean, there is a, a basic joy of life that is remarkably easy to forget. Mm-hmm. And I see this all the time with mobile phone use. You know, I see people immersed in Hong Kong here in their mobile phones. They they can't walk without using their mobile phone. Damn, there's a rainbow here. There's a cloud formation <laughs> up there. You know, there's look at those clouds over there. Look at the moon up there. Nobody does that. <laughs> They're all immersed in their damn mobile phones. Now, fine, do whatever you want. But having said that, that does seem kind of strange because we are given the gift of life. Mm-hmm. And part of that gift of life is to keep your eyes open, look around. We're the only beings in the cosmos that can see the moon or rainbows or stars for all we can know. So experience that. So yeah, but- it does seem odd that people simply don't get joy from the wind blowing through their hair or the moon that they can look at. Yeah, or the but- weird flower in the forest. I, I so agree. Exactly. And and what's interesting um, in, in my experience, at least, is that like, so I, I am very much like one of those people who's like, oh my God, look at this flower. And then, and then people, people laugh at me. But, but one of the things that I found is that I always want to try to capture it. So like, if I don't have my phone, I'll be like really disappointed that I can't go and look at that flower again. Like, I'm afraid it'll, it'll slip through my memory and I won't be able to appreciate it. Um, and this is just something I'm realizing as you were talking. That's all. Um, but but you're right. And I mean, everything passes, you know, in uh, 50 years, I will definitely be dead and you will probably be dead. You know, mm-hmm. maybe not. I don't know how old you are. Cut out. Maybe we'll give you so there's a decent chance. <laughs> okay, we'll see. But the point is, I mean, we cling, nothing can be clung to. Everything mm-hmm. vanishes. I know this vividly in my own life because uh, 
a few years ago, I had to give a talk in the town where my grandparents had lived. And I, I went there as a kid and spent summers with them. And I walked a couple of miles and went to the place where they had lived. And it was very strange because I came up to the house and it looked exactly as I remembered it. You know, the same <laughs> wrought iron black lawn furniture. And then I peeked in the window and it, damn, it looked the same. <laughs> and I looked in and then a woman left the house and a woman walked up because she wondering what the hell I was doing. <laughs> and I thought she must think I'm casing the house for a burglary or something. So I just ran away. <laughs> Obviously, she was a different person. The house had it no longer belonged to my grandparents who died 50 years ago. Yeah, uh, it's a different world. And everything passes. So the house looked like theirs. It was not theirs. It was somebody else's. And the same is true with everything we own. You know, we have it very briefly and then it drifts away. Mm -hmm. Nothing lasts. Everything passes. This is one reason I love Japan so much, because the idea of beauty, like cherry blossoms, it's because they vanish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's there's the beauty in the... Uh in the oh what the, the like the i want to say brevity but that's more for language the the quickness of it the yeah. temporariness of it like kind of like mandalas in the sand well you and know? you can use the word brevity because it is brevity um japanese has this term ningen no hakanasa the the brevity of human life and that's exactly it we we live very briefly i am now 65 years old and you know i blink and i remember back when i was a teenager and uh, another blink and I'll be dead. That's what human life is. But enjoy it while you're here. Yeah. And there's something like, you know, like you mentioned, so beautiful about that brevity because it 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 makes it rare. Um, yeah, I'd sort of like to stick around a while. I mean, if I have a choice, I'd like to be, <laughs> man, put me in heaven with a computer terminal just to figure out where the world's going. It's really <laughs> interesting. I'm deeply curious about where the world's going, but I think it's highly unlikely that anything will happen. It is indeed this brevity, this blink, but enjoy it while you're here. Yeah, yeah, I so agree. And I also agree about the curiosity. I talk about what uh, what direction I think the world might be going with my boyfriend. And I'm always like, like, a little sad to say, like, we'll probably be dead. You know, <laughs> we'll probably be dead by then. So we'll never get to know. Um, but it may be sad or it may not. I mean, that very fact of dying may make it so much more terrific to be here exactly because of its brevity. I mean, I, I, the wisest, one of the wisest things I've ever read was somebody who said, um, I think when I'm dying, I will say not please for more, but thank you. That's a great way to look at it. That's it is a great way to look at it. Um, and and the, other, the other interesting thing you were talking about, um, Buddhism and uh, I think Hin uh, one of the Hindu. Indian religions, yeah. I don't remember if it was Hindu or um, Hinduism, but... Uh, <clears throat> One of the really interesting concepts I've seen come out a lot of there is um, happiness as like fulfillment through the idea of neutrality, you know, um, and and observation and curiosity instead of instead of applying you know our emotional filters to every situation, and and I really I really like that as a concept. I'm not sure that I'm even close to being, you know, neutral overall. But, uh, yeah, and that's an interesting idea. I wouldn't want to be completely neutral. Uh, certainly, numbers of, of Hindu sages do indeed practice that 
uh, neutrality. And I imagine some Buddhist masters do too, and that may be a wonderful, wise state to be in, but I prefer to be emotionally involved. Mm -hmm. I have dealt with this personally with my wife, with whom I'm very deeply, happily married. And sometimes it seems that if I was truly wise, I wouldn't be so attached to her. I would realize everything vanishes, be attached to nothing. But why the hell should I do that? <laughs> I love her deeply. Why not be attached? Now, when she dies or if I die first, it will be very heartrending for both of us, I think. But uh, I assume it will be heartrending for her. I think it will. <laughs> anyway, I'm um, having said that, um, why not be immersed in emotions here? And I've thought about this a lot in my life because... Um, if I were pursuing wisdom as Eastern religions such as Buddhism would have it, I would be less attached. But the attachment can be a wonderful thing, uh, I think. I, I wouldn't go against it entirely. Um, mm -hmm. This reminds me, by the way, of one of my favorite uh, haiku in Japanese literature by a guy named Isa. And just to give the Japanese, uh, Tsuyu no yo wa Tsuyu no yo nagara, sari nagara, which to translate it, well, first I'll tell you the situation. His child had died mm. and he was heartbroken. Yeah. His child was maybe three. And his friends came by to commiserate and they were telling him, look, the world is, it, you know, it's, it's just cherry blossoms and dew. It, it, it goes by. Uh, don't don't let this truly depress you. And he was saying the haiku, my liberal translation is, yes, the world is but a world of dew. And still so that I know everything passes, but still yeah. the pain remains. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh, I have goosebumps. That is a beautiful poem. Thank you for uh, for sharing for sharing that poem. Um, <laughs> I got, I'm all flustered now because I got goosebumps. And stuff. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm messing up your interview. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's it's fantastic. I uh, I really appreciate and and I think that that's I think that that's very close to where I land as well. You know, with the like I really love so much about um, the idea of neutrality and and moving away from attachment. But every time I make attempts, you know, to to study up and and find out how one does that, I I'm like. But I like it, you know, I like, I like being happy and I also enjoy, like, I don't enjoy being sad in the moment, but I enjoy what I learn from sadness. I enjoy what I see in my, myself from sadness, the curiosity of watching my mind when I'm sad, because it works entirely different than it does when I'm happy, you know? Um, so, so like, that's, you know, like I, I pursue it sometimes and then I kind of go back to, I love emotions. <laughs> so. Well, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And um, I am not sure because men and women are more and more alike, I think, uh, these days. But at least when I was growing up long ago, there was a gender difference of men being more burdened with ambition. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, young women today are just as burdened with ambition. And the problem with ambition is it leads people to take themselves too seriously. Mm -hmm. like, this is what I want to do. This is really important. No, it's not. It's not important at all. Now, I'm not saying don't be ambitious, do all you can, but it's all a game at the end of the day. It doesn't matter. And that's really important to remember. Um, you know, and I've, I've, in my own life, I've been mildly successful, but so what? You know, 200 years from now, 100 years from now, I'm going to be completely forgotten. You're going to be completely forgotten. Fine, let it be. 
it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And taking myself too seriously is something that I have absolutely fallen prey to an embarrassing number of times because yeah, ambition is. <laughs> it's easy to do, believe me. <laughs> um, ambition is, you know, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. And like, it's one of those things that's really interesting to me because a lot of people will say, you know, if you're not ambitious or, you know, if, if you, if you become satisfied with life or if you practice radical acceptance and accept where you're at, then you're never going to grow. And I think it's such a weird take because, because everybody I've seen that's happy with their life does continue to grow. They don't just decide to never change anything ever again. And I, I, I find that that's perhaps like, it almost feels like I don't know if propaganda is the right word. It's not quite what I mean, but something like that, where we're we're using this idea to to sort of try to prevent people from from finding satisfaction because we're afraid, you know. And and I mean, I've been guilty of it. I think you're probably right. Now, first, let me interrupt this interview to say um, I am pronouncing your name in a Japanese fashion as Kara. Is it Kara or Kara? Um, it's it's Kara, but I. Hey, Kara. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Then I've been pronouncing your name steadily wrong throughout the course of this broadcast. Okay, sorry. I, uh, I never, never mind when people pronounce my name wrong. It's it's something that doesn't matter at all to me. And actually, like, um, I, I really enjoy the Japanese pronunciation. I love that my name is part of the word karaoke. <laughs> but karaoke, like, okay. yeah, it's, it's karaoke in Japanese. Yeah, so exactly. That's, that's a, yeah, I've spent much of my uh, uh, adult life in Japan, and so it, it tends to to influence uh, even pronunciation of names, as you can see. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't lived in North America for the last twenty five or thirty years, and so I, well, except maybe just one and a half years or something. So I, I, I'm I'm mixed up by it. But back to your fundamental point here, um, I agree exactly with what you're saying. Um, the only question I have has to do with growth. And do we grow or do we simply grow older? And I'm not really sure, frankly. Um, I may be more mature than I was 30 years ago. I guess I hope so. But I sure <laughs> as hell don't want to think about it. Because if I think about it, I'll get too self-conscious. And I don't want to be self-conscious. I mean, the less I think about myself, the better is the way <laughs> I look at it. I don't want to introspect. Now, why can I say this? Um, as I look at my life, I seem to be blessed with a personality that makes the people around me like me, and I appreciate that greatly. I don't seem to be fucking up other people's lives. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I am at all. And so if that's the case, then why do I need to think about myself? I'd rather look at the world and be in the world and think about myself as little as possible. Now, my brother sometimes tells me I'm the least introspective person he's ever met, and maybe he's right, but I don't want to <laughs> introspect. I, do, I love life. Let me enjoy it. <laughs> That's a great take and probably something that I could use more of because I, I'm the opposite, is that I'm, I'm constantly, constantly introspecting and observing, and I'm trying to do it in a non-judgmental way because I totally see the trap, and, and I've gotten very self-conscious lots and lots looking at, oh, I haven't grown enough, or I haven't done this enough, or I'm not kind enough, or I'm not this enough, you know. Um, but I, I try to, you know, sort of zoom out and watch because it's it's so fascinating to me to sort of, you know, try to observe like my life when I was younger and these decisions I made and mindsets that I don't really have access to thinking that way anymore. 
You know, like I can't put myself in the head of 13-year-old Kara. But the decisions I made, like it's it's fascinating to me that someone who was, you know, 13, 17, and, you know, like I said, I had an interesting life. I had drug addiction and stuff like that. Um, looking at looking at myself then and looking at myself now and it's like it's a different person but the core is still always the same the fundamental personality is always the same and i find that so interesting absolutely right kara i mean we don't really change our personalities do stay the same (laughs) that's just that's definitely the case but at the same time um one thing i've noticed as i get older is things matter a lot less Now, my wife and her well-being, she matters enormously to me. My students matter a lot, but many other things don't matter. I mean, I remember with my first book, uh, the first bad review I got of it just had this enormous effect. I was devastated for a week or more of, (laughs) God, what's happening? But now, hell, I write a book and I get a good review and a bad review. So what? It's just somebody's opinion. It doesn't matter, which is really interesting how it, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish I'd known this 30 years ago, but obviously that's <laughs> a part of a function of growing older. And, and you, we spoke of growth earlier. I don't think this is growth. I think it's just getting older. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, now I'm in my 60s. You know, I think I've done most of what I'm going to be doing. Fine. Let it be. I don't need to worry about anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I really... I, I really have enjoyed this so much. Um, <laughs> before uh, I hope it's been useful. I think so. I think so. Um, before we move on to uh, to the little game that, um, and it's just guessing game. What? Uh, where? What? Are, can you can you give the name of some of your books and stuff like that so that people who do find your philosophies and take interesting can can sort of follow up and check it out? Okay. Um, I've written a lot of different books on different things, so it's kind of tough to say, but um, the first book I wrote was on the Japanese concept of ikigai, which has become rather popular of late, which means uh, what makes your life seem worth living, Mm -hmm. the most important thing to you in your life. And that book was called, um, what? (laughs) (laughs) Damn, I can't even remember. What makes life worth living? How Japanese and Americans make sense of their lives. Okay, yeah. Uh, What makes life worth living, question mark. You can look it up with my name. And I wrote a number of books on things like the global cultural supermarket, how people pick and choose aspects of their identity rather than being shaped by their own culture. I've written about global happiness. I wrote another book on chunking mansions, which is this uh, very international uh, ghetto in the middle of Hong Kong where developing world traders come. I wrote about traders coming to Guangzhou. Uh, African traders in Guangzhou. I've written a lot about Hong Kong identity and I'm in the middle of those controversies now and hope to stay out of jail, although I may or may not be successful. We'll see what may come. So a lot of different things have have gone on. Um, I am currently a little more devoted than I probably should be to composing electronic music. And so oh. you can look up on uh, YouTube, just look up my name, Gordon Matthews. You can see my channel. I've got 16 or 18 different pieces. Uh, why am I doing that? Just because it's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can get completely immersed in this. I have some musical background, but to be getting into electronics is, is rather strange, uh, <laughs> just how deeply I can be involved in it. I should also say for listeners that... Um, Early on in my life, I became involved in psychedelic drugs, and I did. I wrote my senior thesis at Yale on LSD philosophy. 
So I have been quite involved in that. I haven't done this much at all for the last 30 years until recently because Denver, in the city of Denver, where I have family, psilocybin has become basically legal. Nice. So I can go back to it and, and experience this stuff again. But that's had a fairly profound effect in showing me that reason and rationality is only one way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I think if if you know I wanted to philosophize about this, I'd say that we now can no longer believe in, for example, angels, spirits, God, for that matter. And that's probably limited us. I mean, let me give a blunt example. If you're not religious, then how do you interpret Jesus Christ rising from the dead or Muhammad getting the, uh, the, the angel Gabriel to dictate the Quran to him? or Buddha attaining the insights that Buddha obtained, you'd have to say these people are schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. Jesus is crazy. Muhammad's crazy. But it might be simply that we've been so trapped in rationality that we can't understand a different form of consciousness where there is different things being seen. Now, I'm not willing to say that hallucinations are real. I'm not going to go that far. What I will say, though, is that there are different forms of reality that our current emphasis on rationality in the modern world may prevent us from fully being aware of. And Mm -hmm. we need to be aware of that possibility anyway. So I've been thinking a lot about that. And that's one reason to turn to electronic music as a way of exploring these things apart from the academic prose that I've had to use through much of my working life, which I've been very happy to do. I've enjoyed I mean, I've, I've loved teaching anthropology and writing about it. It's been very wonderful to be able to do it. But uh, it's interesting to shift to something new now. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I loved everything that you just said, um, especially about the per- in- inability to perceive other forms of consciousness. That's It's just interesting because I've been thinking about that a lot this last week. Um, I also believe in uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies and, uh, and just shifts. Um, so is there anything you want to add before we do? Like I said, it's just a short little game. It's simple. I think I've said all I need to say. Um, yeah, but, but it's interesting what's happening with psychedelics in terms of like Michael Pollan's book and so on, how things have shifted a bit, um, over the last 20 years to make this more plausible for people to use. And it may be regrettable that we have to use it because I think in a different world, we would be able to experience this without having to need substances like this, but given Mm -hmm. the world we're in, where we're so narrowed down by rationality and also by uh, technology, that that we don't see clearly the world around us. And so this may be a technological substance that enables us to transcend technology. So Mm -hmm. a way to a way to access it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So this says, the things we say and the weird and wonderful Lenito. So um, I guess Gibraltar, the English-Spanish slang is called Lenito, I guess. Um, so it says poorish. What does poorish mean? I haven't the slightest idea. Uh, so basically time out. Like when your kids or when kids are playing a game and you go time out. That's, uh, that's what poorish means. Okay. <laughs> Kara, I'm completely confused as to what you're saying, but okay, fine. <laughs> It's it's just a, a, a guessing game. Um, khaki wafer. Do you know what a khaki wafer means? No. Um, it means like a 
like a shithead, basically, it looks like. So that's interesting. I'm going to do one more. <laughs> that's it. Um, uh, so I think that this one's really funny. Um, pee on top. Okay, I, I don't know. No. Okay, so it basically means that you're going to uh, pee myself. So if you scared me and I go, oh, I, you're going to make me pee on top. That means pee myself, which I think is pretty interesting. <laughs> okay, okay. These examples thoroughly confuse me. Um, I, I might add, though, that your question about uh, English-speaking countries in the world I haven't been to was really fascinating. It made me think about some of the really interesting places around the world. Um, one thing that I have been blessed by as a professor is the ability to travel all around the world for different conferences. And some of the greatest bliss is being in a strange city where I don't know the language, you know, sitting down and, and having a cup of coffee somewhere and just thinking, my God, look at this place. But of course, it doesn't have to be a foreign language. It can be in English too. And what are the interesting places we could go to that we haven't? You know, the the, the obscure uh, Aleutian Islands or, you know, uh, God, the Falklands. I mean, any number of places, St. Helena, so many interesting places around the world that can be gone to. And, you know, it's, it's COVID-19 uh, has made me feel, it's given me a mixed feeling because it's prevented me from... Uh, creating such a big carbon footprint because I can't travel as much. <laughs> I'm a much better global citizen because of COVID-19. But on the other hand, damn, all these fascinating experiences from going to interesting new places I can't have. Oh, well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm probably I mean, a better global citizen because of it. I Well, that's, that's a good point. And that's helpful to me because I was supposed to travel June last year and like had it, you know, like I was like, I'm going to go travel and see places and not necessarily far places, but just get out of, you know, my, my little bubble and then COVID-19 happened. And I was like, or I'm not. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll figure out how to, how to enjoy myself just here at home. And, and if that opportunity comes awesome, but it's, it's helpful for the global citizen, citizenry comment. Well, and, and I might add Kara, that it's also important for notions of happiness because we read in newspapers about how people have been blocked off and maybe there've been higher rates of depression because people can't go out and have their social world. But, you know, theoretically we can be completely happy just in our own room. Mm -hmm. um, wow. That's pretty neat. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm picking here. I have my television here. I've got my computer screen here. I've got so many interesting things I can explore. All these books lined up to read, you know, so theoretically and hopefully in reality, we can be abundantly happy regardless of where we may be. Mm -hmm. I, I agree fully. And, and, you know, it's sometimes it's a process and sometimes it just comes upon you. Um, yeah. About the book thing, okay, and this is this will <laughs> I, I know I keep I'm just uh, about the book thing. I saw this thing the other day, and I thought it was one of the most beautiful things um, that I'd read on a meme. And it said, "It's weird that we call them bookstores and not thousands of portals to other worlds." Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, that's so cool um, to just you know think about how you know it 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 transports your you know your 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 conscious mind." to a completely different world. I mean, even even books that aren't fiction or fantasy or storybooks are like that. You know, you get Well, a, a friend of mine was in jail in Hong Kong for leading democracy protests. And uh, he shouldn't have been jailed, but he was telling me how he used jail, and jail in Hong Kong is a little more civilized than jail in North America. 
uh, and, and you have a library where you can get books. But he was telling me he used this as a place to just explore different worlds through books. Nobody likes to be locked in a cell, as he was, but nonetheless, the fact that he could get access to, you know, 100, 200 books that he'd not read before and just be immersed in these worlds, that was enough to make the the, the jailing uh, quite tolerable, not pleasurable quite, but quite tolerable for him. And I find that really admirable. Um, I don't expect to go to jail, but if I do, I hope I can do the same thing. I hope that you, uh, I hope that you don't go to jail. That would be... Yeah, I don't think it'll happen. I, I don't mean to be alarmist here, but <laughs> I do find what he was telling me to be remarkably wise, that one can take any situation and um, manage to use the mind to, you know, really explore and keep learning from it. And, and uh, I hope that whatever may come, uh, I hope I'll be able to do it. I hope I won't find that in my older years, I am far less wise than I had once hoped I was. We'll see what may come. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so, so much, Gordon. This has been a fantastic, I've had so much fun um, chatting about this with you. And uh, yeah, to my audience, I love you. Bye.